0: Well, this is exciting. Do people hear me out there? Yes. Oh, my God. Who's that? (laughs) Jen. (laughs) Hey, Jen. This is Nicole. This is so crazy. I've never done one of these things before, so this is very exciting for me.
1: (laughs) Hi.
0: Now I see some little names that are appearing up here. Oh, look. There's the back of Heather's apartment. Yeah. (laughs) That's over extra. here in the dark where you can't oh, see. Oh,
2: dang girl, there you are.
0: Oh, wow. I don't have my camera turned on. Is that terrible? You probably don't need to No, like... no. I should probably turn mine off. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little backlit, so it's all right. Awesome. It's like, it's like a studio. So yes. let's see. So this is Kate. What's the last name, Kate? So I recognize kind of who you are. Oh, she's not. Oh, she's just muted. Well, uh, she... It's
1: Tinny. Oh, okay, so where are you, Kate? I'm in Australia.
0: Oh my god, that's amazing. Okay, so I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in Richmond, California, so close to San Francisco. Heather, you're in Reno? I'm, in Reno, in Reno, I'm just over the hill from you. That's right. And then Jen, where are you at? I'm in Maine. You're in Maine. Okay, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, so guys, so this was kind of my... So I'll give you an idea about how I thought this would go a little bit. So I saved my flashcards from uh, the neurological emergencies section. I still have my study guide and I like pulled out my Silverstein and Hopper in case I can't re- remember things, which is very likely. And so I figured we would just kind of go through the flashcards that I made when I was studying this section and if there's anything that you guys feel like you want to cover or ask questions on or anything like that like I feel like you know we can totally do that in the next 40 minutes and see how everything goes um so have you guys read uh have you guys read the chapters in the I'm not sure what study guides you guys are using you're probably using one of the ones off the documents of the VTS or bust page right
3: I haven't gotten to all the reading this week yet.
0: That's okay. <laughs> I found that I was perpetually two weeks behind. So I feel like if this if this is the week for neurological emergencies, I mean, like, you know, maybe you'll, you'll get to it eventually. Um, how many of your, so for Kate and Jen, oh, and I guess Heather too, did your hospitals have a neurology department? Do they have neurology services there? We do not. Right. So it makes it a little tricky if you don't have neurology in your, building, because I feel like that resource is so great that you can walk up to this doctor and be like, I don't understand this thing. Can you explain this thing? But even if you don't have neuro- neurology services, that's fine. You'll see stuff. You guys are both working in emergency, I'm assuming, like in emergency departments. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think you'll, you'll see stuff that will, co- that will come through that will absolutely be related to this. So it won't be too foreign. Um, so the first couple things that are in uh, that study guide, and do you guys have that study guide, the the AVEX study guide in Australia and Maine? Sent it you guys, huh? Yeah. Have it? Oh, very good. So that being said, I'm sure you've noticed that there's that that study guide has wonky things in it right they'll have like typos or like a letter of a like you know what the multiple choice answers won't line up or whatever so in addition to that the Silverstein and Hopper as you know is going to be the one that you want but I kind of use that as an outline for these flashcards of it that I made um so is there anything you guys wanted to ask before I just kind of go through a couple Things and like talk about the brains. Any burning questions?
1: No, I'm only about halfway through the readings for this week.
0: Oh, Um, that's that's good though, because that means you're kind of come through like the first part of what these are going to be. So, I mean, as emergency technicians, we're not going to be you know, we're not going to have to like do a lot of like detailed analysis of <laughs> of different structures of the brain, but there was a couple structures that we do have to know. So all the cephalons, you've probably encountered all the telecephalon, mesencephalon, all those things. So what I'll do is I'll go through the ones that I, that, that I made cards for and kind of talk about how I remembered what they were because they're all these like weird part of the word and they all end with cephalon. Um so the the ones that tend to be the ones that are outlined in that study guide are the big structures so there's one called the telencephalon does that sound familiar do you remember this one that's the big one. So the telencephalon is the cerebrum. And the way that I remembered that was that the cerebrum is in charge of everything, right? Like that's the one that's your consciousness. So your vision, your temporal lobe, your occipital lobe, your frontal um, voluntary motor function, like all of that is in the telencephalon. So I used to remember that because i think, tell me everything. Tell me everything that you do. Tell me about your vision. Tell me about your motor function. Tell me about your consciousness. So that's how I would remember telencephalon. Um, that one will become more important in, um, I think we'll get to it a little bit later on, but there's there's two types of posturing that you've probably seen in your study guides where they have that decerebellate posturing and decerebrate posturing. Does that sound familiar? Have you guys seen that yet?
3: <clears throat> yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's when yeah. this, that's when this will be a thing. Cause then you have to differentiate between where, where that disease is, you know, is it going to be the cerebrum or is it going to be the cerebellum? So that was, that was the first one, the telencephalon, tell me everything cerebrum. Cool. Um, the diencephalon, this is another one that you guys are going to know cause I'm sure you've already looked and looked up these two organ systems that are in your brain, but the diencephalon is your thalamus and your hypothalamus um hypothalamus in emergency world tends to be a thing cuz that's where um it connects to the pituitary gland so endocrine function it's also autonomic functions like temperature um Oh, and then like, of course, of cortisol, that's like, that's also has to do with pituitary function. And so that's the part of the brain that in emergency will usually hit that word will pop up, like you'll see it, the hypothalamus will pop up when you're doing pharmacology too. So the way that I would try to remember diencephalon is that it's two things because di, right, is two things. So and it's those two organs, thalamus and hypothalamus. And they're the ones that, um, the thalamus is the one for, uh, it's the relay for like sensory and motor function. And then hypothalamus is the one that's more autonomic function. So I would remember diencephalon cause it's two things, thalamus, hypothalamus. Um, what else do I have here? I also have mesencephalon. So you can kind of guess what that would be cause it's mesen like mid something. So that's your midbrain. Um. The midbrain, now this comes up with nystagmus. Uh, I remember in the study guide, there is a question about that, right? I think it says something like, can you, oh, what it, What type of nystagmus do you see um, when the lesion is in the midbrain? And the answer is vertical. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to remember that because your midbrain is like if you think of it like between two hemispheres, then your vertical nystagmus is going like up and down between your two hemispheres. (laughs) That's kind of how I tried to remember that. Um, And of course like mesencephalon in the middle, midbrain in the middle makes perfect sense. Now I see that I've written down on the back of my card here, motor control of gait. Well that makes sense because we had a question about vertical nystagmus for uh, in the study guide. So, there is a thing that I want to just briefly touch on while we're here in midbrain world, um, which is upper motor neurons versus lower motor neurons. Have you guys encountered that in your, in your reading yet, that upper and lower thing? I wasn't sure what, at what point you yeah. talked about it. You did see it. Was it confusing as all get out? Because it was to me when I initially read it.
1: <laughs> um, a little bit. I did watch a YouTube video that kind of helped explain it a little bit.
0: Oh that's smart. So like yeah, the way that and we'll talk more about this as we get further into it. But the way that I remember my neurologist was talking about it is kind of like a puppet, like a, like a like a puppeteer and the puppets. Did they kind of do it that way where like upper motor neurons were the puppeteer and then the lower motor neurons were the puppets kind of dangling below. But like that's the direction of the signal i thought that was helpful youtube is also an excellent way to look up those things i remember looking that up for like the raas system i had to youtube that too um let's see so let's look at there's only a couple more of these annoying brain parts here we go there's two more so one is metencephalon now that's annoying right because we have mesencephalon which is the middle then we have metencephalon well that kind of sounds like the middle too um but this one is lower down so this one is the pons and the cerebellum. Now, the cerebellum in ER world, that's the one that's going to be important, right? Because remember, we had that, that weird posturing thing where you have to differentiate between uh, the cerebellar and the cerebrate. So that's why this one would be important. Um, the cerebellum is the one that controls and regulates muscle tone and motor activity. Um, so that's, that bit of it will be important. Now, the pons... <sighs> I don't really remember a whole lot having to do directly with this particular part of the brain that that was ERCCU you know e, ER critical care related um but it is where the trigeminal nerve centers and so that's your that's your cranial nerve 5 so that's the one that's mastication so for chewing a whole lot um there is this weird thing that you're going to see in these chapters, which is the A-R-A-S or the ascending reticular activating system, it's a fancy way of saying consciousness. So it's, that's that's really all that is. So if it's, and it, because the pons and the cerebellum are in the same area, that makes sense because when we see them doing this, um, this, this bad, uh, this bad posturing, they're not, they're not Conscious, and so that's and that's part of the differentiation between the, the differentiation between the two. But the the the, cere, the cerebellum, I kind of the way that I had to remember this, like so, it looks like mesencephalon, except it's not mes with an s; it's metencephalon with a t. And the way that I had to picture it in my head is, if I'm remembering the metencephalon, is that where? So, do you guys know where your cerebellum is in your brain, like where it's located? Yeah, I bet you do. If you picture the brain, it's kind of nearer the back is kind of where your cerebellum is. Um, It's just like kind of where your it's not exactly where your spinal cord is meeting, but it's that back half of your brain. And when you think of the brain in your head, like picturing the picture of how it looks outside of the body attached to the spinal cord, you could maybe make it a T shape. Like maybe it's got like a little, T area where the spinal cord meets the brain. And so that's how I would remember the cerebellum was the metencephalon is because it kind of looks like a T and that's the difference between the midbrain and the cerebellum.
3: It's also just met, like
0: they met each other. Oh, that's good too. Yes. They meet there. Yes. That is an excellent way to remember. Yes. So that's how I would try to remember that guy. Um, and then the last one which is one of my favorite anatomy words, the medulla oblongata, which is part of the myelin cephalon. And that one actually is not too bad to remember because you think myelin is like, you know, nerves. And so the medulla oblongata is the where your brain is starting to d- descend into your spinal cord right there. So that one's not um, too hard to remember where that is, but that's a big important one because that's what controls your respiratory and cardiac function. So like when you're having brain herniation and your brain is herniating at the back of your skull, it's destroying your medulla oblongata so that's why you stop breathing and that's why your heart stops um so that's a real happy ending there for that (laughs) that brain anatomy lesson um any questions about any of those parts or like how to remember those bits or any of that i remember that was kind of hard for me um but if you i find it's it's good to visualize it if you can find um Like a drawing of it, then that's really the best way. I find that brain anatomy, when they show, when you get into these, like if you Google it and you try to look at a brain online, it's just a big squishy lump. And for me, that's really hard to look at and differentiate what the parts are. So I thought drawings were a lot better. Like, you know, give me like colored areas with like pen drawn with a pen and lines rather than like. Big squishy bits, because I'm I'm not a neurologist. I can't tell you like what big squishy bits look like. Other squishy bits. Um, okay. So I thought that I thought that was helpful.
3: I'm loving I, the, the the
2: the terminology here, squishy bits.
0: You know what I mean, though. Like it, like there's a there's a there's a picture in the study guide. It was all note the bleeding in the hypothalamus. I'm like I don't know what that. I, I can't. I don't okay, fine, sure. Yes, yeah, so there it is. I see bleeding, sure. But it's just a big giant hematoma in the middle of a dog brain. So I'm like, I can see that. <laughs> I don't know that I can tell you where exactly that hematoma is. Yeah, so that so uh that's the brain bits. So I'm going to put those aside. <laughs> Let's see what else we got here. So um Oh, yeah. Okay. So th- the three layers of the meninges, that's a good thing to know. Um, so I think the, the the they're all the maters, right? Do you remember these maters, the dura mater? That was one I had to know when I was going to tech school. I had to know what the dura mater was. Uh, but there's three of them. So the dura mater, the arachnoid mater, which is not my favorite because it sounds like a spider, oh. and then the pia mater. Mater. So the, the dura mater is the one that we know, right? That's the one that's the really tough, the, um, like durability, right? So that's like the, it lives in the cranium. It's super tough. It's super fibrous. This is why it's hard to get drugs into the brain. Um, The arachnoid mater, that's the one, see, and this is why why it sounds like a spider, which is not my favorite, but it has a web-like appearance, right? It cushions um, the, 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 the central nervous system. It facilitates oxygen and nutrient delivery. So despite me not liking the word, it's doing really, really good things. Um, the cerebral spinal fluid it runs into the um, subarachnoid space right below this. So this is kind of this arachnoid mater is right over, um, is right over where the cerebral spinal fluid is. And the last one, the. Pia mater, which means like little, like itty bitty mater, um, is the very delicate and vascular bit. So that's the one that s- supplies blood to central nervous system tissues. So you can kind of, and they're, luckily they're all, it all kind of makes sense what order they're in. Like the dura mater, like the big mama, like that's protecting everybody. The arachnoid mater with the little web below, that's protecting the subarachnoid space, which we know of. And then the little mother, the Pia mater, that's the one that's supplying the, the blood supply. So those layers I did, I, that, those ones are good to know. I feel like those will, those will come up. Um, cerebral spinal fluid, I feel like we kind of intuitively know what that is because, you know, if I feel like we're all pretty nerdy people and we probably read human medicine things and they talk about cerebral spinal fluid a lot in terms of diagnosing things. Um, I've never had to do any real cerebral spinal fluid like testing or immediate stuff that had to do with that in emergency. Have you guys ever had to worry about that specifically? Usually it's like, oh, we'll transfer it to have a spinal tap. Like that's, (laughs) that's as far as we go. Um, Similar to plasma, but there's a lot less protein that's in there. Um, It is a transport medium for, for nutrients. It's got some um, antibacterial properties, but you know what it mainly does? It's a shock absorber. Like that's mainly just kind of keeps everything floating around. Like that's, that's really its purpose. And so we get worried when the shock absorber has stuff in it because it really shouldn't have a lot of stuff in there. Um, so, like what are some of the things that you guys know of that are not supposed to be in there? Like, when do we get worried when we see things in cerebral spinal fluid?
1: Kate, I choose you. <laughs> um like bacteria if yep. there's an infection.
0: Yup, yup. What else can be in there? And then if there's bacteria, what else is gonna be in there? Um,
1: white blood cells?
0: Yup, yup. So now there can be there can be both. There can be one. Um, A lot of times if you're having an inflammatory response that has nothing to do with bacteria, like if you have an autoimmune disease, you'll just see white blood cells in there. I saw this really messed up monsters inside me where this guy had like a worm in his brain and they saw eosinophils in his cerebral spinal fluid. And so they were like, "Uh uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> that's a bad white blood cell to have in your cerebral spinal fluid. So yes, you are exactly right. Those are the types of things you don't want to see. Um, your neurologist is going to do a tap for this. This is, I mean, unless you've got some freaking balls to the wall ER doctor, that's not something that you're really routinely really going to see. Nor should you maybe see. Um, they
1: have you guys seen those before? Have you seen somebody do a, a spinal tap before in a in a dog or a cat? Um, I see our surgery department do them.
0: The surgery. Yes. Surgery department. They would do it. Absolutely. Now, did they use the the cistern at the bottom of the skull or did they do it in their lumbar?
1: Um, I've seen both. You've seen, seen both. Yeah. So surgery usually do lumbar, but medicine people do the skull. Do the skull. Yes. Yep. Absolutely.
0: I mean, like in tiny animals, the skull is going to be the way to go. Cause I feel like the lumbar it has to be a big dog, right? It's usually the big animals that they're doing the, the lumbar one.
1: Um, it's usually dash ants who have done spines.
0: <laughs> oh, gotcha. But they're not doing an epidural. Like they're, they're doing a, no. they're doing a tap. Oh, very yes. good. Oh, there must be, there are some skilled people. Yeah. I feel like it's tricky. There's less of it down there. People with human beings, you have much more of it down there. Um, so let's take a look at, we talked about lower motor neuron and upper motor neuron I think YouTubing it is a great idea. Um, Yeah, the, the the best way that I could have that differentiated was just that, you know, like your upper motor neuron is kind of like the top, like, and so that's like what controls your lower motor neuron. So diseases can manifest, the main thing to know is that diseases can manifest in either of those places. So like an upper motor neuron disease is your cerebral cortex and your brain stem that's voluntary motor function versus lower motor neuron um it's in the cranial or the spinal nerves and so uh like the neuromuscular junction stuff so like oh that would mean like i think myasthenia gravis probably would would qualify as um lower motor neuron disease so I think the YouTube idea is a great idea to get an idea about how the differentiation between those two, the one that we'll run into more often is differentiating sympathetic versus parasympathetic. So we, this is one that'll sound familiar because we have to study norepinephrine effects and and all the alpha receptors and beta receptors, sympathetic fight or flight. We know this one, um, epinephrine and norepinephrine, those are the transmitters. Parasympathetic, that's one that's the uh, rest and digest function and acetylcholine is the main transmitter. So that was one thing that I think is important to note in our VTS world is to know what the main neurotransmitters for those are. So sympathetic is the noradrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine, parasympathetic, acetylcholine. Um, have you guys looked at the twelve cranial nerves? Have you guys looked at looked at those guys? Got a little mnemonic for yourselves to remember what those are? Everyone has a different one.
1: I looked at it and kept going. <laughs> yeah, right. Scary.
0: So. I'm not going to go into these very much because like you could, you could spend an entire like two months memorizing what exactly these ones do. There's a couple like important ones that are in there. Um, I feel like the trigeminal one, that one's going to come up a couple of times because that's chewing and it's also like facial touch. And sometimes you'll get like dogs that have trigeminal nerve pain. That's a person thing too, like human medicine deals with that. But I had a little... Um, Uh, like mnemonic that I would do for that, which is the 12 things are on old Olympus's towering top, a fine vocal German viewed some hops. That was the one that I learned. (laughs) Everyone's got different ones. Um, But that was how I remember it. Like once I could get the first letter of all 12 of those, then you could go through and fill them in. Like olfactory, optic, oculomotor, trochlear, like all those guys. Um, The one that's going to be the one that you'll see is the vestibulococular. So that's the vocal of the fine vocal German. Um, cause that's the one that's hearing and it's balance, And that's the one that's these vestibular dogs that come in. Sometimes that's the, that's the cranial nerve that's disturbed, whether that's going to be through uh, or originating in the brain or whether that's going to be originating in their ear somewhere. Cause it goes very close to their, to their ear canal and that's the dirty, dirty, dirty ears that can cause up those vestibular signs. Uh, let's see what else I have here. Um, it's a good idea to, to just review elements of a neurological exam. You don't have to like go crazy about it, but like, you know, movement and gait, reflexes, the cranial nerves is part of that, um, sensory testing. So spinal palpation, like I'm sure you've seen with like the doxins, if people are like pushing their their two fingers along their spine to see where they react, to see like where, where to see if they do have a lesion, where that might be. Um, let's see. Ooh. Here's a good one. Cluster seizures. Uh, this is a, this is a question in the book, I think. Cluster seizures are defined as what? How many do we have to have within a 24 hour? period two or more yeah that's right so and that's what that's what the avect people want you to say <laughs> like whether whatever what your hospital says or whatever i feel like they're, it, de- they're it a, i thought
2: i thought the question was uh was um defining status no
0: oh they might have one for status too they absolutely may have that this is this is the one that was the um uh like how many they were going to have within a 24 hour period. Yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the status one? What's that one? It's just how many many seizures is it considered before it's considered status? What defines status? Oh, I see. Before they like define it as a, as a epileptic fit type of thing. Oh yeah. That one, that one, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I would hope they have an answer to that in the back of the book. Yeah. The
3: the new Norcus book says more than five minutes. Oh, yep.
0: There you go. That's good. See, and that that's relevant to what I remember reading too, like prolonged seizures. Yeah. So five, that's right. The five minute mark, that's a problem. And uh, we all know why that is, right? Like why that five minute mark is important. Like what are, what are a couple of the things that start to happen when you're seizing for that long?
2: Brain fries. Yeah.
0: Right. But what is that though? Like what is the brain fry? Yeah, we just start to think about it, right? It's like, oh, uh, well, one one thing we know. So, what is the one vital sign that we're always going to do because we're we're awesome emergency technicians that we're going to get first? Temperature. Yeah, temperature. That's exactly right. So that's the fry, right? You can think of it that way. <laughs> that's the fry. If there's body temperatures going up physiologically throughout their entire body, yes, that is absolutely something that we're going to check for. But there's other things that are happening in the brain. So when the brain is having a seizure, this uncontrolled electrical activity, it's working really, really, really hard. So it's it's a really high – it takes a lot of energy for the brain to to have a seizure, especially for that long. So what starts to happen is that it's losing – um, it's using up all of its glucose, which means that it's going to start depleting ATP, which means that your lactate is going to accumulate. So, and that's when your brain is going to start to die. So a brain without glucose and without oxygen is a dead, dead, dead brain. So that, so physiologically, that's what's starting to happen when your brain is seizing for that long. And you're right about the temperature. That also is a problem because the rest of the body is going to start heating up too, and the organs are going to start shutting down. But yeah, your brain itself like gets tired. It depletes all of its energy. Very good. Very good. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, girl. Uh, I am... Gonna
2: cut out a little bit early because you definitely have this. Um, <laughs> minor things I wanted to just throw out there for you guys to talk about is talking about um, the use of mannitol, the use oh
0: very good of yes
2: hypertonic saline, um, the elevation of the head, neck, and shoulders when you get a traumatic brain injury kid in. Um, and indications of those medications and also what Lasix does to help facilitate um, or work synergistically with it.
0: Love it. That's perfect. Thank you, it. Heather.
2: You're welcome. I love you guys. Good luck. Thanks. Let me know if you have any questions. And if you need me to put, post anything up, I will.
0: Right on, girl. Thanks, Thank Sarah. you. Bye. Bye guys. <laughs> Let's see here. Uh so good. Yeah, the mannitol thing for sure And that's actually a question in um in that study guide that they uh, they want you to know what mechanism that is. Uh, I think I have you know what? I think I have it back here. So I'm going to do a couple more things before we get to the Man- the mannitol one. Here is a thing you will have to know. The formula for cerebral perfusion pressure. Have you seen this before? Do you know what I'm talking about? This this CPP. This will be a thing.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I'm just going from memory, but isn't it like MAP minus intracranial pressure or something?
0: There you go, girl. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's simple, right? It's a simple formula to remember. But I I guarantee that this will come up. I guarantee it. In some way, shape, or form, you'll have to know this. And that's exactly what it is. is oh, bless you. It's, the, it's the, the mean, yeah, the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure equals your cerebral perfusion pressure. Um, now, you don't have this number, right? Like the intracranial pressure, we don't get that number. Like unless you're in like a university setting, you're not going to know exactly what that number is, but the, it doesn't matter. Like Regardless, they're going to want you to know what that formula is. So good. I'm glad you know it, girl. You've got that. That's easy. Um, Cushing reflex. Who knows the Cushing reflex? This is a good one. You'll see this one in emergency too.
1: Um, Bradycardia and hypertension.
0: Yes, that's right. And uh, Jen, I heard you chime in there too. You You knew about the Cushing reflex, yeah?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So Jen- the third, one, there's like, we were talking about this last night because one of my doctors was helping me study. Oh, good. And they were also talking about the third thing that nobody really mentions but should be looked at is the respiratory patterns as well.
0: Oh, now that's, int- that's a good one. And is he says, are you watching it because it, it it has to do with brain disturbance? Is that what he wants you to watch the respiratory pattern?
3: Uh, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah
0: so this is this is very good because I think that and I don't know if I have I don't know if we'll get to it today but yes that is a thing so there are there are different respiratory patterns that you will see that have to do with brain injury and I think that that's what your doctor is referring to is like what what types of what types of brain patterns to watch for is that a cat purring that I hear right now oh yeah that's sorry freaking, that's oh, I love it that's amazing <laughs> It was like, all of a sudden, like super close. Oh, that's so He
1: just curled up on my chest next to the microphone.
0: Oh, he says, you can fix my brain. It's fine. Oh, that's very cute. (laughs) But yeah, good job, guys. Cushing reflex, you guys know what that is. Um, The mechanism of why that happens, do you guys know why that Cushing's reflex is happening? It's kind of interesting as to like why the brain, like what's going on in the brain to make that happen.
3: It's Dun. the, is it the, because of the swelling on the brain, it's, oh man.
0: Oh no, uh, you got
3: it. Full stop. Swelling in the
0: brain. You got it girl. That's <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's it. Like it's increased intracranial pressure. That's right. Now what happens, so what is the brain going to do when it's swelling inside that hard skull so it can't expand? So what happens that makes your heart slow down and your blood pressure go up? I'll give you a hint. A swollen brain is not a happy brain, right? So it's going to have a stress response. It's going to say, oh, no, I'm dying. So what happens when our bodies go, oh, no, we're dying? What do we release a
1: lot of? Uh, Epinephrine.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Catecholamines so, so, and, and also that, right? So yeah. So like it's a, it's a catecholamine response. So cortisol for sure. And what happens when, uh, and which also in turn is going to release epinephrine, which causes, uh, systemic hypertension, right? Cause that's vasoconstriction. And then there's a reflex, bradycardia because that hypertension is happening and so your heart rate goes down so it's this weird like adaptive response that your brain is having because of that decreased cerebral blood flow because it's getting squished inside of its own container that is the release of catecholamines vasoconstriction causes the hypertension and your heart go your heart with all its baroreceptors goes like whoa this blood pressure is really high that's crazy and slows down so that's like the sequence of events that happens. I find that like totally fascinating. It's kind of amazing. So good, yeah. Uh, let's see, oh, so we should cover the two things that Heather mentioned, because it's important. The mannitol. So have you guys given mannitol before?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, very good, okay, great. So what type of deritic is mannitol? Osmotic. Yup, it's an osmotic deritic. So the purpose of giving mannitol with um, increased in- intracranial pressure—why do we do that? What does that help to do?
1: Um, is it pulling just fluid away from?
0: Yeah. To yeah. like
1: drop intracranial pressure.
0: That's right. That's right. So what it's doing is it, 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 it what it's doing is it's osmotically sucking fluid. Out of the tissues and into the vascular space and so um, when you have brain edema your tissues are, are they expanding inside of that hard container which is your skull so if you give mannitol it's going to osmotically diurese that it's going to suck all of the fluid out of those tissues and into your vascular space so that it decreases the pressure inside of your inside of your brain Um, it's also, you know, they, depending on how risky you want to be, it's contraindicated these days with patients with kidney disease, because it can cause some kidney problems with these big molecules moving around through there. I feel like they're, they're moving now towards more. And Heather mentioned this, we're moving towards hypertonic saline. Uh, as a good alternative because it's a little bit more uh, protective of the kidneys. Same idea that you're giving a hypertonic solution into the vascular space that's going to pull fluid out of the tissues and into their bloodstream so that it reduces swelling. That also is going to, um, if you're giving, uh, if you have a patient that's shocky, that can also help with blood pressure That because that's going to expand your intravascular space a little bit. Um. So hypertonic saline is good for that as well. Have you guys given hypertonic saline? Do you guys have that at your at your clinics? Yeah, yeah. we have it. Oh, good. Yeah. I feel like, like it wasn't around for a while and now everybody's got it. And that's why. Because there was a study that came out that was like, mm, mannitol might beat up your kidneys. And so now everybody's got hypertonic saline as well, depending on what you need. Um... Let's look briefly. We talked about this weird reticular activating system, which is consciousness. That I feel like is maybe not. Oh, look what I found. Respiratory patterns associated with intracranial lesions. Girl, this is it. (laughs) So... Now, as far as which one, you'd have to ask ask your doctor exactly which respiratory pattern he'd want you to look for, because I'm not really sure what it would be. But this is where you're going to see things like Shane Stokes breathing. Does that sound kind of familiar? It's like C-H-E-Y-N-E. And that is where that, that's, that's badness. Like (laughs) you see that that's badness. It's diffuse cerebral disease. So like if they have these periods of apnea, right. So they're breathing, 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 not breathing. Oh my God, it's dead. And then they take a deep breath. Oh, okay. No, maybe you're not dead, but these are not, not generally conscious animals. But yeah, that's one of the that's one of the things. Um there's a hyperventilating thing that you'll see, send they call it central neurogenic hyperventilation, where it's persistently hyperventilating, which has to do with the midbrain. Um, this is a good word. I'm going to screw it up. Apneusis. Oh, is that what it is? A-P-N-E-U-S-I-S. I don't remember having to know that one. <laughs> that one's obviously gone out of the Rolodex. But that one, it says, is breathing that pauses at full inspiration. So they breathe in, hold it for a sec, and then breathe out. And that has to do with being specifically um, in a certain part of the brain, a pontine lesions. So it's got to be like the pons, right? Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's breathing is the is the pons and the cerebellum back there. Okay, good. Thank God that made sense. Um, let's look a little bit... That's good for the respiratory thing. That's cool that that came up that your doctor brought that up. I, loved, I love your doctor for doing that. That's great also that you've got support for that because I feel like there's this is a ton of stuff that you have to know. And if you have doctors in your clinic, that'll quiz you on it. That's great. Um, so we're almost done with our time here, guys. I'm just going to kind of flip through a, a couple things that we won't go into it, in depth um modified glasgow coma scale that's something to take a look at and and know a little bit of what the, what they're looking for for that there's the human glasgow scale but they've modified it for veterinary medicine um there is the oh so let's let's just talk briefly about this decerebrate and decerebellate rigidity because that will come up um decerebrits because your cerebrum is the telencephalon tell me everything that's all the things That's a type of brain lesion where they are not conscious. They have opus thoughtness. They have rigid extension of all limbs. So like all the limbs are are straight out. This is the bad one. Now there's another type of posture that looks very similar, which is called decerebellate. That's the one where they're conscious, they tend to be rigid more in their thoracic limbs, sometimes the pelvic limbs, but more thoracic. And that can be a lesion in the cerebellum that's causing that. But these animals are conscious. So so VTS wants you to know the difference between those two things. And there's another type of syndrome that causes that where you have a lesion that's in your kind of thoracic vertebrae. Do you know what that type of pose is? That's Shift Sherrington. Yeah, Shisho, good job, girl. Yeah, Shift Sherrington. That's the other one that we'll see. Um, Things to know for infectious stuff: botulism versus tetanus, like the type of the type of um, bacteria that's going to cause those. Tick paralysis is something that I don't really see very much in California, but in Australia, you see that, right? Have you seen
1: that in your clinic? um yeah it's ridiculous it's Um, ridiculous (laughs) in tick season two-thirds of our hospital are tick patients
0: unbelievable that is like my favorite thing about everybody being from everywhere is that like yes so that is your world right there tetanus we'll see more of botulism i've never seen um, but it, it, what's interesting is that you can use the botulism bacteria sometimes to treat tetanus because it causes floppiness and tetanus causes the rigidity. I love that. I think that's amazing. Um, the the endotoxins of tetanus, that's something to know that it's, you know, it, it, it differentiates it between botulism because the tetanus is the stiff one. Uh, let's look through... We talked about neurotransmitters. That's wonderful. Oh, oh, I have Christian's reflex twice. Ha, ha ha ha. Must be important. Um and then who is the most susceptible to tetanus? That was something that came up. Like there's a there's a, it's it's very there's certain species that are way more susceptible horses. Yeah, girl, horses and humans. We're the worst. <laughs> I have horses, so that's oh, so you have to know about it. Yes. Yeah. And then Who's the next one after horses? It, would it be people? What? Yes, people, absolutely. Yes, no, absolutely people. But after horses and people, um, the two primary species that we see are dogs and cats. And do we know who's more susceptible than the other?
1: I'm going with dogs because I've seen three dog cases and no cat cases.
0: And there's a reason why that is, girl. You are exactly right. So yes, so dogs. So here's what's so crazy is that horses and humans they, we're screwed. Like, we're going to get it. Like, it's going to happen. That's why we're vaccinated against tetanus. That's why the horses have to be vaccinated against tetanus. Dogs are 600 times more resistant than horses are to tetanus. Isn't that amazing? Like, that's a huge, that's why we don't see it as often in dogs. It's 600 times more resistant. And then cats are 10 times more resistant than dogs. Has anyone ever ever seen a tetanic cat?
1: No,
0: I've never seen a cat. Me neither, and that's why is because they have so much more resistance than um, than dogs do. Ten times more than six hundred times more of horses and humans, which I think is amazing. Actually, a doctor that I worked with had um, a tetanus cat that she treated, and she said what's really weird about it is that you know dogs have this. They call it as the sardonic. Or uh, oh, what do they call it? It's a good word. I'm not going to remember something. Something sardonicus, like this grin that they have because their facial muscles tense up. So their little ears get really rigid. They look like they're constantly in a state of quandary, like their little ridges over their eyebrows get really, 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 really tense. And it's this very specific tetanus look to a dog's face. I think there's a picture of it in the Silverstein and Hopper um, of a dog with tetanus. And they have this little, this rigidness of their face. Cats don't really get that. Cats tend to get it in their limbs. So this doctor remembered that this cat was like sticking its hind legs straight up, like a flag waving around and it was totally fine. Otherwise she's like, what and it ended up having like a scrape on it from a barbed wire. We tend to see it from, um, foxtail migration. That tends to be the the reason why dogs will get it in the Bay area. But again, very, very rare. Like we, you know, you've seen it in Australia. I think more times than I've seen, I've, I've seen, Ooh, I didn't even see it. It was a friend of mine from another hospital who had a dog with tetanus. So I had never even seen one. So yeah. I think that's that's great if you've seen it. I feel like it gives you a leg up as to what to look for. Uh do you did you treat your the dog that you saw? Did you treat it with the
1: uh, with the tetanus antitoxin? Yeah, yeah the they antitoxin. both antitoxin. Yeah. So I was a big part of two cases, and they both got treated. Cool. Um, and they were unfortunately both referred, um mishaps that caused it. So they were what we re- they were what? referring. Referring vet. Oh um, no! Did they get it from issues. a dirty needle or something? Um, one was a swab that got left in an abdomen, and the dog <gasps> went right in the garden. That's so um, no bad. <laughs> and the other one was a very minor fracture in a dash hand leg, and they casted it and didn't maintain the cast very well, and the Uh-oh. leg went necrotic and had to be amputated. But it already wow. had tendons.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So those were both like, yeah, those are both iatrogenic cases that you guys had. Yeah. Wow. Do they live? They did. They both lived. That's fantastic. You know, UC Davis, which is not far from where I live. um, They're about an hour kind of Northeast from where I am. They have a tetanus ward. So they have a specific area of the hospital that is like, you know, quiet only there's like three doors to get into it and they've got these big red signs that all say tetanus ward and they'll treat they'll treat dogs primarily in those cages that are back there i remember when we did a little tour in when i was in tech school we went by there but they didn't have patients in there so we were able to kind of walk through a couple of those doors and see and see like you know the the places that they were i mean it looks the same as any other part of the hospital it's just that it's like specialized just for tetanus cases um the tetanus uh, endotoxins that they have. So you mentioned the antitoxin. Yes, that, the antitoxin I've never given before. Um, but they do they do have it if we need it around the Bay Area. But it's kind of few and far between. I feel like the one case that my friend treated in this other hospital, they had to call around and see who
1: had it. And yeah. they were able to get it. Um, the interesting we, thing about...
0: Oh, yeah, go ahead.
1: We routinely give all our dog flight wound patients um, tetanus antitoxin as a preventative
0: really yeah wow so you guys have quite a bit of it in australia then yeah dang isn't that interesting like i mean like that's just like not something it's like the tick paralysis thing like that's just not a not a thing like in california like there's just not something you think about versus in australia you're like you know ventilating like five or six patients at At the the same same time time. (laughs) because of that oh i love that um the the thing that I think is, is good to know about tetanus that will come up is that um, recovery requires the growth of new nerve terminals, which takes forever. So yeah. the, like, you know, like I know, I'm sure like your animals that you had, they were hospitalized for a hell of a long time, right? They were in there. For, weeks. Yeah. Weeks and weeks. And it does happen. Like they are able to grow those new nerve terminals, but it just takes forever. Um, and it affects the inhibitory neurons, which makes sense when you think about it, right? Because it's losing the ability to inhibit nerve impulses, which is why you get overactivity, right? So it's it's a different effect than botulism. So the inhibitory is gone. So I'm not inhibitor, I'm not inhibiting my nerve impulses. So therefore I'm going to be stiff and I'm going to have these like crampy muscles and all that. So that's why, um, That's why you get this. This oh, and this I love this word, Uh, the particular endotoxin called tetanospasmin, because you spasming. I thought that that was really interesting. Now botulism is different, right? So botulism is the one that causes you to be a little bit floppy. So I remember reading in the Silverstein and Hopper. That you can oftentimes use botulism toxin to treat tetanus because it's the, it's the opposite effect on your nerve on your on your nerves on your nerve um, terminals. So I thought was amazing. Uh, let's see what else do I have with infectious stuff. You guys, have you ever seen botulism? You ever seen that in in your hospitals? I've certainly never seen it. I've never seen it. No. But apparently, they get it from. Um, it's it's one of those things that you don't see very often, but I guess sea fowl, like uh like seagulls and that type of thing, like they carry botulism. So if you've got a lot of dogs that are eating a lot of dead seabirds, then they you tend to see botulism cases because they're eating the bacteria like off the beach. Um, which I thought was totally bizarre. <laughs> but I guess that's a big that's a big source of it. Water waterfowl and seabirds. Um and this one uh, interferes with the release of acetylcholine. So, this one, it, 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 I guess presents initially. Now, I've never seen this, but it presents initially as kind of a stiff, rapid gait that then progresses to being really, really, really flaccid tetraplegia. So. Um, the cranial nerves are affected by this one. And this one, instead of getting stiff, they get floppy. So I remember there was a dog that had brain disease in the hospital that I work in. And that was on the differential list. It's like, well, if he's really, really floppy, it could be botulism. But we see it so, so rarely that it, it they did an MRI scan. It had a tumor in its brain. It's like, that's much more likely to happen in our area than, than botulism is. There is an antitoxin uh, for for botulism uh, the in the book it's specified as type C antitoxin for treatment it 's certainly nothing i 've ever seen um, but if it's some, but if it comes up in your pharmacology, I guess the type c one i don 't know if there's an A or a b, <laughs> but that 's the one that Silverstein Hopper wants us to know uh, tick paralysis, so that guy. I feel like you're going to school us on this one. I mean, like this one does the same, it has the same mechanism as, as botulism where it interferes with the release of acetylcholine. Um, do you find that it's about three to five days after the tick attaches that you're starting to see these guys come to you? Um,
1: anywhere from 48 hours.
0: Yeah, there you go. So that makes sense. Um, so this one too, you look for the tick, right? Do you try, do you, do you find the tick ever or you just
1: kind of, yeah, always you have to find the tick. So if you don't find the tick, they don't get better. They don't get better. Yeah. That's right. You you have to, um, sedate them and shave them if necessary. It's that important. Um, and they have to have, um antitoxin without that they will die so they will
0: die that's right and do, you do you find that you um have ones that have like a partial paralysis where it's like they're kind of flopping around a little bit but they're still able to breathe on their own and they're still able to eat yeah so they
1: kind of um they grade them on both their muscle paralysis and their respiratory paralysis so uh-huh, uh-huh. um the muscle paralysis is like a 1 to 4 so 1 is like just a little bit wobbly but can still walk and four A's like can't write themselves. Oh, very then, good. Um the respiratory stuff is A to D, so A is no respiratory compromise and D is on the ventilator. I so they it. can have like you can get like a one D or a, you know, four A or a four D. Like it, it's they can be independent of each other.
0: Jen, are you loving this as much as I am? I'm loving I'm loving the tick paralysis grading.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool well not for them but
0: (laughs) that's amazing that's amazing i mean i love that you have like a a grading system for that because i think that would be so important if you're seeing a lot of those animals right as far as like making cost estimates for people and like prognostic indicators for people as to how things are going to go
1: yeah so i find those guys are in the hospital as long as the tetanus guys no so if they're going to leave um usually kind of two to five days if they're sort of there more than that they usually don't go home then they don't go home right 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 like there's a, there's a
0: certain period like if they go beyond the five days and you're like oh this is maybe yeah but,
1: and they just get worse they get worse very quickly um wow. they often get secondary aspiration because they have no gag reflex
0: oh of course right or if they're being ventilated right i mean everybody on a ventilator, or if on
1: a ventilator. Oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and the brachycephalics tend to do a lot worse than the non brachies
0: Oh, that makes sense, right? I listened to a CE once with this Australian guy talking about how Queensland healers are the strongest dogs on earth, and if it's a Queensland <laughs> healer, then he doesn't worry about it. He's like, oh, I just want to live. But then if it's not one of those dogs, he's like, oh, no, I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah, they're really, they're really nasty. Um, and so the cheek antitoxin is a blood product, so you have to treat it like a transfusion. Right. Um, Do, what's the origin
0: so, of the, what, what animal is that antitoxin bred in? Is it like the, the snake antivenin where it's a horse or something like that? Like a large animal?
1: It's a dog product. Oh, dogs okay. Have less problem, but, um, cats definitely have Uh-oh. lots of reactions.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Cause they're giving a, a cat, a dog thing. Well, that's good. If it's a dog product, God, I can't think of, uh, isn't that weird? I can't think of one. Product that we give—that's like a biological product, like that—that's dog-oriented in California. Besides blood, I mean, like blood, blood and plasma, obviously. But like the the antivenom for the snake bites—that's a horse product or a sheep yeah. product. Wow, the human albumin—we'll give human albumin to dogs. Obviously, that's a people product. Wow, but the tick one, dog product. V- See, I'll learn something from 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 all of our different <laughs> locations. I think that's so great um
1: and if they have it multiple like each time they get progressively worse reactions and they get sicker from the tick paralysis so if they've had like already a tick this season and they get another one they oh, crash worse and burn the really quickly. Time.
0: yeah oh that's creepy oh god that's like that horrible um there's some horrible disease that humans can get called loss fever if you've heard of this it's a little bit like ebola except you can get it more than once i'm like oh great <laughs> excellent but I didn't know that though, that if they've had a tick already, that that puts them more susceptible. Yeah. Oh, that's great, guys. Well, I tell you what, I did find that word for that tetanus grin as I was flipping through here. It's risus sardonicus, and that's the that's the the Latin term for sardonic grin, and that's their that's that weird pose that they do where they got like their ears are stand like kind of standing up, and they've got the wrinkly brow. I love that risus sardonicus. Uh, let's see, we talked about tetanus treatment and we talked about preventing stimulation. Um, have you ever heard of magnesium as a treatment for tetanus? No. Me neither, but it came up. <laughs> and there, so there was a, a little, little spat in here in the same paragraph that was talking about giving the botulism toxin because it has the opposite effect. Um, magnesium, it decreases calcium. At the neuromuscular junction and that results in a in a decrease catecholamine release from the adrenal glands so it like it by decreasing the calcium it decreases your acetylcholine release which decreases this catecholamine release so i've i've never heard of that outside of the books um but the but magnesium treatment came up as something that you could give. I mean, of course, preventing stimulation, you could do benzodiazepines and all that as well. Um, but I thought that that was interesting that that came up. Magnesium. Side note: um, I don't know if we're. Did you guys do the electrolytes part already? Did that come and go? No, not yet. Oh, it's coming. Magnesium is one of those weird things that you never ever use, but the VTS, the VTS board wants you to know what that one does. Um so so if so keep your ears keep your ears attuned for when that guy comes up. Um let's talk about just just briefly as we approach the 12 o'clock hour. Uh, there was some stuff that I read about um that I remember being very complicated for hepatic encephalopathy. So this is something you guys have seen, I'm sure, right? With like dogs and cats with really, really bad liver disease. I'm sure you've seen hepatic encephalopathy before. Yeah. Um, So the things that I had read about this, so we know that it happens with um, high concentrations of ammonia. Like you guys, do you guys do the ammonia testing when you see the hepatic encephalopathy?
1: Like we our, do lots of ammonia testing for shunt patients.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's it. That's well. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly why you would do it. That's right. So the high concentration of ammonia, um, there's a decrease in um, in the excitatory neurotransmission. So there's a there's you know the NMDA. You know, have you have, have you seen that the the N-methyl D-aspartate? Seen that already? Yeah, Yeah. okay, good. So that's, that's what this is. So it's down-regulating that. Um, but what it also does is it, uh, it decreases your inhibitory transmission. So it overstimulates. It's overstimulating um, those NMDA receptors, but it's also decreasing your inhibitory receptors. So those two things happening at the same time, like it's kind of like poking the bear. It's like poking the bear and then tying yourself somewhere where you can't get away from it. It's like poke, poke, poke. You're going to stimulate this thing, but then your inhibitory transmitters that are normally there to be like, yo, that's too much. Calm down. That's not happening. So that's why we see these seizures that can happen is they're overstimulating those NMDA receptors. Um, they're also, now here's where it gets a little bit complicated. So have you had doctors tell you before when you have these hepatic encephalopathy patients, if it seizes, don't give it benzodiazepines. Have you heard that before? Yes. Now, do you know why that is? It's weird, uh, right? Because you're like, the animal's season. What are you talking about? Don't give it benzodiazepine. It's
1: like, I'm going to give it benzodiazepine. No, no, don't do it. So benzodiazepine is protein bound and it's metabolized by the liver. So they can't metabolize it. So we would give them levorectum. Right. Oh, yeah. Le- or Yeah, the Kepra, right? Yeah. Yes.
0: So that is true. There is also this other, so, the, so why would it be, it's true it's metabolized in the liver, but there's a weird thing that happens where you actually have endogenous benzodiazepines in your body. So an elevated ammonia, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, an elevated ammonia increases expression of endogenous benzodiazepines. Weird, right? So our body already has some level of benzodiazepine. It's not. It's obviously not the ones that we're giving. I mean, it's it's endogenous ones. So they're in our body, but they are these ones that already exist. Um, these uh, and the receptors are more like, so So what happens is, I know I'm stumbling over this because I find it complicated. When you have these elevated ammonia levels, the expression of these receptors for your own benzodiazepines um, is increased. So when you give benzodiazepines, you're essentially overdosing the patient. Weird, right? So it's like, it's a different, so you're not incorrect, you're Right. That, um, that the liver is less able to metabolize those drugs. But it also is the fact that your elevated ammonia levels is increasing your body's ability to receive benzodiazepine so that the ones you've got already that are around, which usually doesn't make a difference, when you give more, like you give diazepam or you give lorazepam or whatever, it's, it's essentially overdosing you and you can go into a coma. So that's why they say to steer clear of those. Does that kind of make sense? I remember being really confused by that when I first read that. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird, right? Welcome to neurology. Weird. Um, The Keppra we talked about, do you guys have um, gabapentin and pregabalin in your hospitals?
1: Do you have those ones? We have gabapentin. Ah, but not the not the
0: pregabalin, right? That one tends to be kind of neurology focused with the pregabalin. No. Yeah, those are. I mean, I, I, we we won't talk too too much about those two. I mean, basically, they're what they do is they um they bind to, and this is where it gets complicated. They bind to voltage gated calcium channels, and so it inhibits the release of excitatory neurotransmitters. Um, so if we're inhibiting the excitement, then we're reducing pain levels. Um, there is some, you know, I ran into this thing where it said that it um they were using it for seizure control, but that's not what we're. That's not really a thing. I think that that's maybe when they like first were using gabapentin seizure control and gabapentin are two things that are normally associated. Uh, oh, but this 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 will relate to so nursing parameters. This relates to what Heather was saying: nursing parameters to watch for intracranial disease. Do so you remember what the first thing was that she mentioned right before she popped off? <laughs> When she was talking about their head position.
1: Oh, elevating their head.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So have you guys done that before when you know you've got brain disease or you've got um, like, you know, a hit by car that's got head trauma? Have you elevated their head before? Like, you know, kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. especially if they're recumbent, right? I mean, like they're not moving around too much. Like you can just easily do that. Now you'll have to school me. I feel like I've forgotten like the degree of elevation, right? Like Less than 30. There you go. Okay, perfect. So yeah that's excellent i'm glad you guys know that yeah because i know that that that's a formula thing that that um that do- one of the doctors that i work with does now there's another thing that you can do that's super easy which is supply oxygen right like you do, you guys do put them in the oxygen cage or have like a mask for oxygen with brain brain trauma yeah yeah yep. that's always good that's an easy one um Something to watch for, too, is blood gases. So what happens to blood vessels when we have a high carbon dioxide? Does it dilate it? Does it constrict it?
3: constrict I
0: don't know oh that's okay you had a 50 50 chance right (laughs) it was one of those so carbon dioxide so if you have a high level of carbon dioxide we can kind of think about logically how this would be um and this kind of goes into more my comfort zone which is anesthesia stuff so um if you have a high level of carbon dioxide, do we like having a high like does our body enjoy having a high level of carbon dioxide uh probably not so in order for our um, in order for our body to get rid of carbon dioxide it 's got to get out of our bloodstream so when things want to get out of our bloodstream we we want to um dilate our vessels because then it will more easily get out of there right so carbon dioxide will dilate your blood vessels now what's going to happen in my brain if it's already injured and i'm dilating blood vessels up there it's going to increase my intracranial pressure right because all of a sudden i'm dilating all these vessels up there so you have to be mindful of where your carbon dioxide uh, carbon uh, concentration is when you've got these patients that are, have suffered head trauma. Because if you're dilating blood vessels in your brain that's already damaged, then that can increase unnecessarily your intracranial pressure. So that's another parameter. Um, oh, we talked about this a little bit already. Uh, your blood glucose. Your blood glucose is important uh, when you've got brain injury because your poor... Poor brain, which has been, and whether this is um, from trauma or whether this is from excessive seizure activity, your brain takes a lot of freaking energy. And if your blood glucose is low, then your brain doesn't have enough energy to survive and do all the things that it needs to do. Um, I always try to remember this because that your glucose is important in your brain. Because if you think about uh, like human beings, that we have to have a fairly like, like, like now that we have developed from, okay, bear with me here. I'm gonna, go, I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna go off a little bit of a tangent, but it's worth it, I promise. Like if you think of like cavemen versus human beings today, right? But like this, that cavemen were eating grasses. They were like chewing on raw bones. They couldn't process their food very easily. So their brains were not relatively large to their body size because they literally didn't have the energy to feed it. But then human beings learned fire and we learned how to cook things and we could have these high protein diets. And all of a sudden our brains got really, really big and really, really complicated because brains are hungry things. And if you feed it then you will absolutely get more things out of it. So that was kind of how I had to remember blood glucose being so important to brains. It's like we, the brain is a hungry, hungry organ and it needs a lot of energy just to do normal things, just to do things like regulate your breathing, keep your heart beating, keep your vision working, let alone trying to study for a VTS exam, right? Like we're tired on the end of our shifts, right? And then you try to like, you're hungry, you open up a book, you're like, oh no, this is not happening. Like so that so glucose is another important parameter there. Now what? Ooh, what's another important parameter, Jen, that your doctor
3: told you to watch for? Uh, the respirator? well you mean um, yes. Like, okay.
0: Yes. No, you're right. Remember, there's that one scary one, that one that came up, yeah. that Shane Stokes one. Yeah. That's a scary one. Yeah. So your doctor is right on there, and then of course heart rate uh, what, what are we, what are we watching for when we're monitoring the heart rate and blood pressure? That's probably too much of a clue.
2: Cushing's reflex.
0: There you go. Cushing's. That's right. So we're watching for that too. I think that covers all the little things that I had on this parameters thing. Can you guys think of anything else that I'd want to watch for, for intracranial disease? Perhaps
3: after multiple ah. doses of mannitol or hypertonic saline
0: yes yes now not mannitol because what's mannitol mannitol is a type of As... i'll give you a hint xylitol mannitol
1: it's a sugar. Yeah,
0: you got it. It's a sugar. That's right. So, so sodium, I mean, I mean, maybe for, if you're like really messing up their kidneys, you might want to watch for sodium stuff with mannitol, but you are 100% right with the multiple doses of the hypertonic saline. Now I've never seen that happen. does I mean, it can't happen. So yes, very, very good with the hypertonic saline. Watch for sodium. Now sidebar, Uh, there is a whole bunch of formulas that you guys will have to know for this exam. It's kind of like one of the worst parts, right? And one of them is um, correcting of sodium over time. Oh, I feel like it's really hard to like talk about it like, you know, use words to kind of talk about those formulas, but you'll get to it in the electrolytes chapters. I'll, I'll tell you right now, don't be afraid. Just you, be slow and methodical going through those, write down a lot of formulas, do a lot of practice problems. Um, you will do some sodium correction stuff that will take an entire page of paper to get through the calculation, but it's all stuff that... You can do it. It's all math we know how to do, but it's a lot of complicated. So when you guys get there, um, just don't be afraid to reach out to me or to Heather or to Courtney to kind of help or Renee. She's the one who helped me. Renee LaCorte was the one who helped me last year to kind of get through all those formulas. But yes, you're absolutely right. Get the things that we're giving can alter their, um, can alter their electrolytes when we're dealing with brain disease. There's a really easy one that you can do, um, that has to do with your cranial nerves that you can look into. Where am I going to look to see if I'm getting any response with my little pen light?
1: The eyes, PLR. Yeah,
0: there you go. Exactly. PLR. Yep. Because if you're, I mean, like, I'm sure you've all seen those patients that have come in that are being ventilated or have suffered bad trauma and their eyes are fixed and dilated, right? You'll hear it in, in Grey's Anatomy. Eyes are fixed and dilated. Um, but more often what you see is anisocoria. I feel like that, that I've seen like from dogs getting hit with a baseball, you know, like all of a sudden, like one eye will be like, will be really, really pinpoint. And the other one's really, really dilated. Yeah. So that absolutely is another thing that you can look for. Uh, let me see if there's any other interesting bits and pieces in this pile of cards that I have here. Um, did you guys have anything specific that you, that you wanted to, wanted to cover? I know I've got like, I've got a lot of, bits in here but is there anything that you guys had questions about like especially like just like about the exam or about studying or anything like that I feel like you guys are being very well prepared you guys answered a lot of my hard questions really well so I'm really not that worried about you two
3: (laughs) Heather had mentioned before she left with that potentially giving Lasix after Manitol
0: oh yeah that's right she did so I think that what she's looking for, so what type of, what type of diuretic is Lasix? Loop. It's a loop one, right? So, and where is, which loop are we talking about?
3: Loop of
0: henley Yes, girl. I'm so glad you know these words. They're gonna come up. It will be (laughs) a thing. It will be a thing. I guarantee you. So I think that where she was going with that, and we'll need Heather to verify, but I think where she's going with that is that when you're giving mannitol, you are pulling fluids into the into the um, intravascular space, which now you have a high volume of fluid in your intravascular space that you might not necessarily need to correct your blood pressure. Because if you're dealing with a head injury, what's our Cushing's reflex doing? Our Cushing's reflex is getting our blood pressure really high. So I think where she's going with that is that you can give Lasix in conjunction um, with the mannitol in order for them to diurese the, their, blood, their, their high blood volume. So you would be able to get rid of that fluid by urinating. So then you don't keep it in your vascular system. So you're
1: I, not um, fluid overloading them.
0: Exactly. So you're not fluid overloading them. Yes. I think that's where she's going with that. That's my educated guess. Now that with a grain of salt, right? Because what did we learn in the last couple of years is that mannitol can kind of hammer on your kidneys a little bit. Um, so I think that and Lasix, as we know, can also hammer on your kidneys a little bit. So I think all of that was is going to be in conjunction with your doctor and like preexisting disease and the age of the animal and like you know what kind of kind of disease processes you're really treating. But you're right; it, it could it, it could un, by giving mannitol it could unnecessarily uh, raise your blood pressure by having fluid overload. That is true oh you know what else is a weird thing that came up was um neurogenic pulmonary edema you guys encountered that in your in your reading at all no it's a weird thing it, i I almost feel like why why vts world why why did you even bring it up if you don't know what it is like there was some there was um i did have this flashcard on it and it was because when we were looking at non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema causes um, this was one of them. So it's this weird thing that can occur uh, with a brainstem injury without any kind of uh, pulmonary trauma. And sometimes intracranial hemorrhage will cause that, like if you have, a, like if you have a, a bleed in one of the arterial vessels in your brain, and it can occur really, really quickly. And it happens with brain disease that they'll get this pulmonary edema. And we don't really know why. We don't know why that is but it does sometimes happen. And I, I think the only reason that I had to kind of write it down was because when I was looking at a list, when you're looking at your cardio stuff, there is a list of, um, you know, things that can cause non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So like, you know, choking and strangulation was on there. Electrocution was on there. And then this neurogenic pulmonary edema was on there as well, even though we don't really know what it is. Uh, but if you're doing your reading in the next couple of weeks, i i I bet you that that will come up. Um, it's the same kind of thing where zonisamide came up as a drug to treat seizure activities, just to say, we don't really know how it works. <laughs> like, here's a drug. We don't really know what it does. I mean, it does modulate some activities in like sodium and calcium channels. We know that it enhances GABA activity, um, but we don't really know. We, a lot of these seizure drugs were like, oh yeah, it works really great. We don't really know why, <laughs> but it does. Yeah, but you'll run into those in pharmacology too. Uh, let's see here if I have any other bits and pieces. So good question about the furosemide. Um, a lot of the stuff that you'll see in those Silverstein and Hopper chapters, they have a lot of intracranial pressure monitoring information that's in there. And you'll see these little diagrams of dogs with little intracranial probes in their heads. Uh, boy, is that not something that is part of my world at all. (laughs) Maybe UC Davis does some intracranial pressure monitoring, but man, I just, that's just not something that I've ever seen or really had to worry about. When I spoke with my neurology team about it, when I was studying for this, they said, yeah, that's something you'll do in a university setting. And that's really about it. Uh, but it's good to read because it will give you a good idea about the physiology of why we're worrying about that so much, um, and why we're worrying about things like uh, like our formula, right? Because then you can actually do that formula for cerebral perfusion pressure that can actually part of your, be part of your world. Um, and then of course it does go into a little bit of blood gas stuff like your metabolic rate of oxygen consumption and uh, and how the elevated CO2 causes the vasodilation and increased uh, intracranial pressure. So some of that's relevant, but don't get too wound up in the monitoring of it because it's something you'll probably rarely, rarely see. Um, how are you guys feeling about, uh, let's see, what relates, like pharmacology stuff? Is that, is that a bit that you guys have come in, come in past already? Like you've already done a... A pharmacology section
1: yeah we have done pharmacology okay good
0: that's good so then because so there really wasn't that much of it in the in the neurology bit of it you know what i mean i feel like that you guys have probably covered most of the seizure like potassium bromide and phenobarbital and like those those types of things there there's not that much more information i found in the in the study guide or in the Silverstein and Hopper, the pharmacology stuff is going to cover it for the most part. And the next one that I'm doing is um, reproductive emergencies. So that must be like coming up in the next couple of weeks huh, on your study guide. It must be like one of the, one of the other things that has yet to be covered. Because you did transfusion medicine. Did you do that one? Yes. Yes, that was okay. last okay. week. That oh, was last week. Before, okay. or something. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. So yeah, so I feel got, like y- you guys have hung in there all this time. I thought that, I thought that the Zoom meeting thing was going to cut us off after 40 minutes, but it kept going. So I'm like, awesome. We'll just keep, we'll just keep rolling. Uh, so did you guys have any other questions about stuff, about neurology stuff, or even about um, the, uh, like, studying for the exam or any kind of, like, skills list checkoff stuff you're worried about, anything like that?
1: Not that I can think of at the moment.
0: Right on. Dude. A, yeah. A,
3: if what did, when you got closer to the exam, how did you, cause like, you know, you go through these weeks and you're like, okay, yeah, I got this portion of things. But then when you get to the exam, it's like your neurology week was 10 weeks ago. Like, how do you, how do you go back and review stuff?
0: Ain't that a bitch? Well, so (laughs) I mean, it is, right? Because it just, it seems like it's really far away. So I'm a big flashcard person. So I had like literally a duffel bag of flashcards that I took on the plane with me. The the person sitting next to me. She's
2: not kidding. She had a lot of (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: flashcards. It was a lot, a lot. So that was how I dealt with it, you know, is I just had a lot of cards for review because then I could kind of flip through them easily and remember all the things. And even as I'm flipping through them now, I'm like, my God, did I remember that? That's a lot of words on the back of this card. But you know, the more often that you flip through them, the the better that you kind of get at remember. Like I, I actually remembered that I would remember the words on the back. Like so like if things like I would look at the front of it and it would say something like uh, you know, like loop deritics, for example. And then I can actually picture in my head what the handwriting on the back of the card looked like. You know what I mean? Like, you know, how I had listed it. And then I could kind of like, remember what the things were. So I'm a big flashcard person that may not be what you are. You know, maybe you're a list person. Um, so that if you look at a big, like, like a whole list of, of subject headings that maybe you just write down, the things that you remember um, but I found it very helpful to have two weeks three weeks ver like where I had finished everything so I had a really big push at the end of my study like remember I was saying I was like perpetually two weeks behind where you know I w- I really pushed to have the last like two to three weeks before the exam not having any reading material left to go over like it was just review it was just memorizing the formulas it was just Mm -hmm. looking at um all of the eons of flashcards that i'd made it was all communicating with the people on the facebook groups of like hey i've never really understood this thing very well can you help me and like i remember like renee would chime in with a bunch of things for formulas she's really good with those so, it was for me, it was important to leave that time right before the exam that was purely just for review. Because otherwise, you're right. Otherwise, you're going to come to it and you're like, oh my God, I haven't looked at that for four weeks. Versus if you have some time at the end of your schedule to review all of those things, you feel a little bit less desperate. Now, are you going to remember every single thing of every single subject? No, you won't. Like, it's just not a thing. Like, I would say just put that out of your head. You're not going to remember every single thing, but you're going to remember more than you think you will. You'll remember a lot of it. So I think just leave yourself time, leave yourself time for review and you should be okay. It sometimes means you're bringing your book to work, which also sucks. Your (laughs) blood glucose in your brain depleting. (laughs) Trying to look at it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. So who, so let's see. So is there any other things that you guys, had of burning questions, besides just me cheering you on and like hooray hooray you're totally gonna do it it's gonna be awesome. Words of wisdom for others who who's who do I have on here who's who passed it Kate is that you no
1: who oh no, I haven't
0: passed you you're in Australia not passing it yet that's right is it just correct somebody remembered my duffel bag who remembered my duffel bag.
2: That was me. I took it the last two years, but didn't pass.
0: Oh, right. Right. Oh, my God. What's your last name again? Pickering. Pickering. Yeah. Kelsey, right? Yeah. Oh, Kelsey. I didn't see your name pop up on the on my little thingamajigger. You must have joined us. Right I after-
2: joined late. I was having some technical difficulties. My laptop wouldn't let me connect to the Zoom meeting initially.
0: Kelsey, of course I remember you. Oh, my God. Well, this is your year. This is the year that you're going to do it, right? Because you said the last two years that, that, you've, that you've been there? Yep. Oh, yep. my God. Uh, well, you know, I would not carry the pressure around for that. You saw me devastated after I took the exam. Kelsey saw me in my worst of the worst, everyone. I thought that <laughs> I failed that exam. I was so freaking depressed. But I feel like it's worth mentioning that we all felt that way. I think we were all, I will meet all of you, I'm sure. Um, And we were all outside of the testing room, like meeting each other and like talking about like, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. And let's get the AA gradient tattooed on our arms. So we remember what it is. And then after the- Oh my
2: God, I forgot that we were going to do that.
0: (laughs) You remember that? (laughs) I loved that. But then after the exam was over, it was like a ghost town. Like it was, I mean, like we all were, I I, I feel like I can speak for everybody and that we were all- stunned at like the the level of stress that that was for that for that exam but at the same time you're doing the right things you're reviewing everything you're participating in these groups you're reading the material that's exactly what you're supposed to do they engineer that exam to like to trick you well not to trick you they engineer it to be incredibly difficult so like you know if if you just know your stuff you'll you'll know i am living proof that you know more than you think you do (laughs) because I was so sure that I was going to be taking it with you guys in Washington DC and by some miracle of the baby Jesus, that didn't happen, but you'll know more than you think. Uh, Let's see. So what's, so what's the next group that you guys are are doing after this one? Is it me? Oh God. I I don't
3: think we have anything scheduled.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Because there is one in, there's a Jul, there's a July one, which is reproductive emergencies, which I think is going to be me and Chloe if she's able to do it. Um, so, you know, if you guys like the sound of my voice and all this craziness with my flashcards, then feel free <laughs> to, to join in. We'll do it the same way. We're like, you know, we'll, do, we'll do like an, an hour. I didn't realize we could go over an hour with the Zoom meeting. So that's cool.
1: Most of our other ones have been like two hours and we haven't had a problem with time.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, I tell you what guys, I'm kind of like, um, I'm, I'm out of, uh, of stuff for the neuro stuff. Did you guys have questions about other things that have come up, um, subject wise that you can think of? I'm trying to think of things that were hard. How about ventilator stuff? Any burning questions about ventilator stuff that we could review for you guys that would be helpful and like, in the next couple, I mean, well, ventilators. I mean, I feel like Australia, you got that covered, right? You guys do a lot of that where you are.
1: We do, yeah. And um, we haven't done respiratory ventilator week yet. Oh, is it not yet?
0: Oh, it didn't happen yet. Oh, well, let's save it. Let let us save it.
1: <laughs> let's save it all
0: for for everybody. Um, I think that you know, in speaking about the. Uh, cerebral perfusion pressure formula. It reminded me, and Kelsey will know this, that it is very helpful to, um, when you first sit down at the ex- at, in the exam and they hand you your paper and your pencil to write down all of the formulas, just get it out of your brain. I think that was one of the best pieces of advice that I got was like, because you're gonna have so much in your head that you're holding, when you, when you sit down for the test, get the formulas out of it so that you've got room for everything else. So like, you know, all of the, uh, like the osmolality calculation that you'll have to know, the RER calculation that you have to know, know there's usually like 10 or 12, just like first thing, pick up that pencil, write down all your formulas on a piece of paper so that they're there when you need them. And that way you don't have to hold, hold them in your head for longer than you have to. I thought that was a brilliant... Now
2: you've got me thinking about getting the AA gradient tattooed on my arm again.
0: Yes. (laughs) God, what would they do about that? That's funny. They'd be like, "Uh, "Hmm, like who are these girls coming in with these like forearm tattoos of the (laughs) on there?" It's so weird because a lot of our machines do that calculation for you now. Um, Yeah. One of the criticalists that I worked with when I first started at this Redwood City Hospital, she still did it, she still did it by hand. I think the one that you guys will do in your, you know what you guys can do in your own hospitals is the osmolality calculation. Like if you've got a cat with um, really bad kidney disease who is diabetic and is like laterally recumbent, whose sodium is crazy high, but there's no ketones, like do that calculation and I bet you, you will find that they're hyperosmolar. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember disproving it once. Like there was a dog that came in uh, in a crisis and the criticalist was like, oh, this one might be hyperosmolar. I'm like, oh, is it? And we did the math and we're like, oh, hmm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nope. Nice try. We tried. Yeah. So there's some of them that you can do. The RER one, that's a good one. There's a couple like different um, different ways to get to the same answer, and I found that Renee's advice about it was like you'll find several ways to do this calculation. All of them will be like differences of maybe like you know five or five to ten points between them, of um, k cows. But the, the the exam is not designed to trick you in that regard. Like no matter which one you use, you should get one that's relatively close to what the right answer is. So I thought that was a bit comforting as well. It's like, you know, you, you, there are several ways to get to the same place.
2: RER is like my new favorite equation since starting this whole process.
0: And do you do, the one with the square rooting, that one, is that the one that you yeah. guys have, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that what I've been doing. Good.
2: And I've been teaching it to all my coworkers because I'm finding at work that we're either ridiculously overfeeding our patients to oh, the point where uh-huh. they're like bloated and can't eat another bite. Or or, just having
0: diarrhea everywhere.
2: Yeah. Or we're feeding them like half a can (laughs) twice a day and they're a hundred pound dog and we're like not even coming close. Yeah. So that's like my new favorite thing is to calculate out everyone's RER and make sure that we're feeding them like appropriately.
0: Oh, good. Perfect. Perfect. And a lot of those little pocket calculators that they allow you to bring in for that exam have a square root button on them. So that's also helpful. Like I remember thinking like, oh God, I have to find a, an itty like a not a Texas Instruments crazy graphing calculator that actually has a square root button, but the, a lot of them do. So you'll be you'll be safe if you want to use that formula. You'll be able to find a calculator you can use. And you guys are all bringing your own laptops, right? You guys all bringing them with you. Yes. Yeah yeah that's good i feel like the the reliability of the provided laptop seemed kind of shady last year i don't know like i mean i really didn't want to bring mine just I'm like lugging mine around but it seemed kind of weird like they it, but it wasn't i was not convinced of their follow-through for that so i think it's good to bring your own and you'll get all of the passwords for the exam software and like you'll get a test run and like so so don't worry too much about that part of it. Like they, they took care of that fairly well last year, I thought, and I didn't have any problems with connecting to the wireless of the hotel. And I had no problems with the program. Um, I didn't like shut me out of my computer forever. Like I was afraid it would cause you know, it locks your computer for the time you're taking that exam. It was fine. So I think all of that is I'm, I'm hopeful crossing my fingers for you guys. It'll be just as easy this year. It'll be better this year. Cause it was the first year they ever did. That was when me and Kelsey took it the last time.
2: Yeah, the laptop thing was stressful for me last year because the previous year it was written, you showed up with nothing but your pencils and your calculator. And then last year, to have to like bring a laptop and try it beforehand, that was like definitely a source of stress for me.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. I thought so too. I mean, like, you know, because I didn't really, I mean, it's a source of stress for me to just carry my laptop around because it's like, you know, I have a lot of other things on there. So, so I've made like all the podcast stuff is on there, like, you know, like all my music stuff is on there. So I'm like, I don't really want to take my life across the country to deal with this. But on the other hand, um, I feel like if you, if you do have your own thing, you kind of know the device. So if you get into trouble, you can troubleshoot it yourself usually. But I don't, there was like maybe one person that had a problem out of that entire room of people, which I was very impressed by. So not too terrible. Uh well it's 12:30 kids. I don't want to hold you too much longer. You guys did freaking fantastic. You answered all of the hard questions really really well. I think you're thinking the right way. Um I have found with neurology um that pictures are really helpful, so I'm glad that you guys went on YouTube and looked at stuff. Um pictures are really helpful when you're looking and differentiating between that decerebellate and decerebrate posturing. Um because you'll definitely be able to see pictures between those two things. Uh, and I think too that with the type of uh, math calculations that, that are in there that you'll see for like the intracranial pressure, the big one is the cerebral perfusion pressure, which you guys knew. So good on you guys. I feel like you got a you leg up. And obviously I had two, I had a, a repeating flashcard for pushing <laughs> reflex. so it looks like that'll come up. <laughs> All right, kids, y'all good? All good in the hood. Any last, final burning things? No, Australia, you're good. Maine, good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) Okay.
0: Wonderful. Well, Kate, Jen, Kelsey, thank you so much for coming. And um, there'll be another one that I'll do on the reproductive one in July. Um, And if I can pop into the other ones, I will. But I very much appreciate you guys hanging out and doing it. And I'll. It's been recording this whole time, so I'll try to post it for for everybody. So if you guys want to want to listen to it later than you totally can
1: thank you i just um, found a photo and a short little video of one of our tetanus cases so i can pop it on the group if anyone hasn't seen one it's just got the facial um posturing and stuff rises sardonicus the harry potter character
0: rises sardonicus yay that's very cool kate in case you haven't noticed it's like the people from other countries and like faraway places that have the best stuff. Like I just love, there was somebody in the ER vet tech rounds who had a horse with like a, like I forget what it was, it was like a horse with a tumor in its sinus or something. And she was, she's from Oklahoma and she posted all these pictures of like the draining of the sinus and the MRI. And I was like riveted. <laughs> like, look at this. Cause we just, you just don't see that. It's just not a thing. I mean, we have California, we have foxtails. That's oh, so what we have. Those little bits, plant material. You guys
1: know the foxtails? No. Yeah, we don't have yes. them, but I've read about it.
0: Oh my God! Is that we had a dog? Okay, quick, 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 random story. Oh yeah, because I said I was going to talk about weird cases. Well, this is this one is fairly relevant. The dog didn't get tetanus, but this is often how they'll be transmitted. So they're like these little grass awns that are pointy on one side. And in California in the summertime, they are literally just blowing all over the streets. I mean, like it's just like just dry grass bits point with pointy ends everywhere. And dogs, what do they do? They sniff around. So they'll like sniff them up their noses. They'll get them in their ears. This one particular dog is a German Shepherd, and she um, had a fox. She has really really thick German Shepherd fur, and a foxtail with its pointy end had migrated through her skin through her abdominal wall and into her abdominal cavity and wedged itself under her diaphragm. So this dog came in for a septic abdomen when she was this is a strong dog like she was like maybe like five years old she walked to the surgery table with an abdomen full of disgusting fluid she like the surgeon was wiping sterile gauze along her abdominal wall with mats of bacteria like piles white fluffy mats of bacteria from this dog and she lived i mean to the tune of like 12 to fifteen thousand dollars. but the origin of that whole thing was one migrating foxtail we didn't even find it the first time because the first time was a late night surgery at like midnight and she wasn't very stable so we had to kind of clean her out as best we could and abandon ship and then the second day she did well for about 12 hours and then got really really sick again they took her back to surgery and that's when they found one foxtail wedged underneath her diaphragm and she lived after all that yeah so they can cause a problem They can be bad, but most of the time, most of the time, it's just like my dog is shaking its head and scratching at its ear, or my dog won't stop sneezing, and there's blood coming out of his nose, and so you have to sedate them. Um, They don't always have to be under general anesthesia, but so you sedate them, and you use alligator forceps and a little otoscope cone to wedge in their nose and their nostril, or you look in their ear, and you can find these little tiny grass aunts that are just migrating in one direction, causing a problem. That's our California signature, that and salmon poisoning, cola. I feel like those are the two California signature things that we get to have. Uh, But not much parasitology in VTS world. There's a little bit, uh, but if you're curious, let me know, because I love that subject.
1: Well, certainly over here, everything is pretty lethal. So
0: I was going to say, yes. Were you at the IVEX where the two guys did the lecture called Deadly Australia? Were you at that one? No, I've never been. Oh, you've never been? This is your first one? Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, there were two dudes that gave a lecture um, called Deadly Australia, and they were from Perth. And uh, they did a very engaging lecture all about all the things that will kill you and or your dog in Australia. And uh, one of their, they ended their lecture, so you're going to appreciate this, with a drop bear cautionary. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So we'll end on that. Everyone Google the drop bear epidemic of Australia. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything more. I'm going to leave it there. All right, guys, you guys are wonderful. You'll do great. It'll be awesome. I will see you guys the next time for reproductive emergency stuff, which I find very cool. It may it seems like it's a little pedantic and boring, but no, we'll make it good. We'll make it good.
1: Thank you so much. You bet, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye.